must be here about the advertisement. Yes, yes, we're looking for an apostate to work night shift and keep watch. We've always done things on an honor system here, but, well, you must have read about the incident with the wrong cat. The notion's coverage really didn't do us any favors there, and we're under tighter scrutiny now. No, scrutiny is not a comfortable situation for a gray haven. I'm glad you understand. Well, I just need to see formal documentation of your status within the Order of Apostates, and... <laughs> oh, you should have seen your face just there. Priceless. Shadow humor, you know. No, no, of course, your virtulicata will do. Yes, yes, this looks good. We'll just ask you to stand right over here and keep watch. Start unweaving any weaves or unsummoning any summons. Hmm? Oh god, yes, absolutely unvance any vancing that's about to happen. Especially that. Oh, uh, you do get a free drink with each shift. What can I get you? Welcome back to the secret cellar. I hear it's a little easier to find the second time around. I'm so excited to share tonight's episode with you. We'll be hearing from Aaron Stalka, who tells stories through fiction writing and exploring what it means to be apostate. You'll also meet Rourke Bywater, who extended the world of Invisible Sun by creating a game which can be played in or out of character, in the actuality or in shadow. This episode does come with two bits of fine print. The first is that the audio quality on Erin's interview is far less than she deserves. I'm still very much learning how to do all of this, but I'd encourage you to stick with it, because she's brilliant. The second is this. If you listen to podcasts precisely because you want to escape from the drudgery of real life here in shadow, this may not be the episode for you. We're talking about what it means to be apostate, both as a character in Invisible Sun and as a human who lives in the world. We don't expect this show to dig into politics most of the time, but tonight we are. One aspect of story is its power to break established structures and change things. It's important. Be aware, too, there's a tiny bit of profanity. In any case, if conversations about when it's the right time to smash an institution or punch a Nazi don't sound enjoyable to you tonight, no shame whatsoever in heading back upstairs to Zero's, where Shadow is a distant dream, and returning for another episode. Okay, without further ado, Vizsla's Call. My friend Aaron, what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking water out of a water bottle, but it's an interesting water bottle. Um, it's a Nalgene that I found in the lost and found in the English building. And so no one claimed it. So I stole it. Um, and it now has uh, local stickers all over it. So I've got a local sticker from Diablo Burger, Wanderlust Brewing, Mother Road Brewing, Fratelli Pizza, <laughs> um, and stickers from the two lit mags that I co-founded and co-edited, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, the tunnels and wax wings. I'm sure we will. Um, that water bottle's been around. I've seen it through lots of through lots of life. Oh yeah, it goes hiking with me. Um, when I teach, I actually use my water bottle that has all my New York stickers on it from all the museums I went to when I was there over winter break. So that's my professional water bottle, and this is my off, off the clock water bottle. <laughs> Do you have a Friday casual water bottle? I don't. There's there's no in between. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I am drinking a, um, a can of, uh, 
Yachak Organic Yerba Mate Berry Blue from the vending machine. Um, <clears throat> my wife and therefore my daughter are from Brazil. And in Brazil, Yerba Mate is called Chamach. And um, this is the only thing I can get out of the vending machine that reminds me a little bit of my family and my life in the other half of the world. Um, however, the fact that it has blueberry in it, which is decidedly a North American thing, yeah. you know, may may not make it work, but it's it's quite delicious. <laughs> your uh, your vending machine is way better than the one in the English department. I think we have the fanciest vending machine I've ever seen on campus. <laughs> actually, I'm not sad about that. So, welcome to the Secret Cellar. I'm very uh, happy to have you here as a guest. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So, give us um, a little bit of an overview, first of all, of some of the various hats you wear and things you do creatively and otherwise in life. And uh, then we'll talk about some of your work. Awesome. Um, I'm an author, educator, and editor. So I have two books, a collection of short stories, which you have read and we'll talk about, and then a novel, which you have not read and I'll tell you about. Uh, I teach here at NAU. Uh, I've taught in community colleges, religious institutions, small liberal arts schools, uh, huge state schools in New York, North Carolina and Texas, uh, but now I teach creative writing at NAU, Northern Arizona University, which is my alma mater. I did my undergrad there, um, which is where I met you, Jason, dear friend. So this is the point in the podcast where they learned that we're besties. Uh, and Flagstaff is my hometown, so I'm from here. And then I edit two magazines, so Waxwing, designed by Jason Robinson of Beauty Mark Studios, uh, a gorgeous online magazine that publishes international work. And then I also work on The Tunnels, which is a magazine here at NAU that undergrads run, and we publish undergrad critical and creative work. That is a lovely array of things that you have done. <laughs> yes, we are besties. I think we figured out the other day we've known each other 20 years, <laughs> basically, because yeah. mm -hmm. we're, we're old. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's another uh, interesting aspect in which our friendship overlaps regarding uh, this podcast, which is <laughs> I've somehow convinced you to join into our upcoming game of Invisible Sun Once the Black Cube Ships. Um, I'm so excited. <laughs> uh, so is this the point where I admit I've never done a role-playing game? Um, yes. I'm new to this. This is what's this is what's fabulous about it is I think anyone out there who knows anything about Invisible Sun would agree that taking um, people who have not played role playing games before and throwing them into this particular one is probably dumb, but <laughs> not dumb at all because you know I'm really excited. We are going to have a few other uh, gamers at our table, which you listeners will all uh, get to know in coming episodes, um, who you know who come from good RPG stock and will know what to do with this. But I love, love, love the fact that Aaron and some other folks at the table um, are going to come in knowing a lot about stories and characters and rich worlds and how to, uh, how to get the most out of humanity, but nothing about, you know, the history of RPGs, which I think is actually going to be a really great addition to our table. Um, so... Yeah, uh, it is. It is not unintentional that you yeah. have no idea what you're about to get yourself into. It's going to be lovely. And I think I've told you. I think it'll make me a better teacher because uh, my students play a ton of role-playing games, and so I think it'll just help me understand that kind of storytelling that they also do in addition to formal writing in my class. So. The opinion that uh, playing these games makes you a better human, broadly. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, well, let's start off by talking a little about uh, your book of short stories, which, as you mentioned, is the thing that I have read. Tell us about it. Um, it's called And Yet It Moves. It was published two years ago, so in 2016, um, loosely connected by ideas of science um, or science fiction or fictional stories about real science. Um, uh, yeah, it's a weird little collection. <laughs> it took a long time to find a home in the world, but I was, I was really glad when it did. I want to talk a bit about um, general themes by way of a little story. When I was first giving you a brief overview and introduction of Invisible Sun uh, and talking about the various types of Visle wizard that you can be in this world, I had a question for you, which was, hey, here's, here's a brief overview of these things. Which, which things which things might you want to be? And you looked back at me and said, um, well, can you guess? And I guessed incorrectly. <laughs> but to be fair, well, there's no fairness. I should, I should, I should have known. But uh, also, I hadn't, um, hadn't yet read your book. I chose apostate <laughs> with very little deliberation. <laughs> I was just like, yep, that's, that's me. Yep, got it. I think apostates cannot afford to deliberate. Um, what is it about? Well, first, tell us just, just your understanding. Don't worry if it's not technically true from, from the book. But what, what is your understanding of what apostate is in this fictional world? That they make their own rules. They make their own magic. They aren't beholden to systems that already exist. Um, so instead of functioning within an institution that might be problematic and trying to fix it, they just build their own non-institutions. Um, and I've never actually done that in my life, but I would like to. <laughs> well, I mean, we've talked a little bit recently. This may seem off topic, but Star Wars. Um, we had a good conversation recently about, <laughs> about The Last Jedi, and uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, some of your comments about the the struggle between Ray and Kylo Ren. Uh, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, that I'm I'm kind of team Kylo Ren, and he says like let's burn it all down. <laughs> um, I went to a conference recently, and there's this journal I really love called the Fairy Tale Review, and their issue in response to the election of 45 is the charcoal issue. And if you got it at the conference, you got a book of matches to help you burn it all down. <laughs> um, so one of the struggles of being a professor um, is I'm in a patriarchal, misogynistic, racist institution trying to do liberatory work. Um, so I'm very constrained. Um, and I had lunch with these awesome women professors, and we thought we should just burn it down, have women build the institution, and then like the men and all come join us. Um, but we're going to build something different. <laughs> so I can't do that, but I would like. Um, so I, Kylo Ren and I kind of get each other, I think. So here's my, uh, <laughs> I was telling a friend the other day, although you are a dear friend whom I've known for many years, I'm very nervous about talking about your literature on a podcast because I have no idea about how to review literature on a podcast. But um, my take after having read your book of short stories, in different ways, it seems to me that every story in that book is about smashing something, <laughs> whether that's, uh, you know, an institution or um, a taboo or literally the laws of physics or, you know, whatever. And it's, it's very interesting because you've been writing those stories for that book over what span of many years? 17. 17 years. Yeah. So broad palette of things 
to smash across that time period. Um, but what intrigues me is a lot of art that sets out to smash things strikes me as deeply cynical. Like, not that, which is different. What I mean by that, I guess, there is rage, uh, which is why we smash things that need to be smashed. Yes. <laughs> um, but cynicism prevents hope, and cynicism has no, I guess, good future purpose behind smashing of things. And I did not come away from reading your book feeling utterly despondent about the possibilities of humanity. I came away with a clearer lens for how things could be better if maybe some things that were in the way were in fact broken. Um, and so I wanted to talk to you a little about that because as a, well, first of all, is, does that sound, does that resonate yes. with you? I'm so glad you said that to me in an email, not like live on the air because I teared up. Like I was, that's exactly what I was trying to do. And I didn't know that I had achieved that, and I probably haven't for all readers, but that if I teach it for at least one reader, like really, really means something to me. Um, that was my deepest hope. Yeah. You got one of us. Um, you used the word liberatory earlier. That seems relevant. Yeah. So liberatory education is rooted in Paulo Freire, who I'm pretty sure is Brazilian, but I might be wrong. So hey, internet, fact check me. Um, and then Bell Hook extended that formulation um, that it's kind of against myself we pose the idea that education and incarceration and the church can create docile bodies and docile minds and so the idea is try to not have do that to have it not bind people make them be folded um, but instead be free to do what they want with their life. That's a, probably a vast oversimplification, but that is my intention as an educator. Um, and then I guess as a writer, which makes me sound a lot more powerful than I am. <laughs> um, I'm working on a memoir about my teaching experience, and I wrote a line that uh, I, I'm acting like I can single-handedly destroy the, this heteronormative, uh, white supremacist, ableist, capitalist patriarchy. And I can't, but I'm going to try. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's relevant. You at very least had the power to make me cry in a Starbucks. So <laughs> that's a start. And now that we have both made each other cry. Um, so I guess the last question I'll ask on this, and then I want to hear about your novel. So what does it mean, both, you know, as a human in this world here in the gray, and then also possibly as a character in the actuality? What does it mean to be an apostate who smashes things for uh, non-cynical reasons. Like, what do you dream you could accomplish? And how do you go about that in a way that brings willing people along for the ride <laughs> without, without, just, without just destroying for the sake of destruction? Completely. I mean, I think that's a beautiful question. And I think in your email, you said something about, like, how do you smash things compassionately? So I would say I want to smash institutions, not people. Um, I want to break structures, not humans. Um, I mean, I'm kind of a, a failed Buddhist in that I know we are all going to suffer. I wish people didn't have to suffer. So I would like to have people suffer less. Um, and by destroying institutions, maybe we can do that. Um, and so, for example, I'm super down with punching Nazis. I, I, I think their ideological violence should be met with physical violence as a response. 
but I don't think that Nazis should be systematically tortured and murdered. Like their violence should not be met with the same violence. Like even Nazis don't deserve to suffer. They deserve to be told in the language they understand, I disagree with your worldview. Um, I'm not good at punching, but if I have the opportunity, I will punch a Nazi and I might break my hand. But to me, that's a statement that's important. Um, but I, I don't want them sent to gas chambers. Like, I don't think anyone should be sent to a gas chamber. So I do have compassion for all living souls. And I wish for all living souls to be without suffering. But sometimes that means you have to be filled with rage. Um, and I have certainly learned that some of our current institutions don't like enraged women um, because it doesn't feel just, uh, but it is. I think it is fair to be enraged and then to act out of love, to not act out of rage. So I will speak out of rage, but I will not act out of rage. And punching a Nazi is not acting out of inappropriate rage. Um, so I don't know if that really answers your question, but. Uh, I am actually a really cynical person. Um, a friend once said that I was a cynical misanthrope, and I had never felt so known. <laughs> people think I'm really cheerful, and that's kind of a defense mechanism, so people will leave me the fuck alone. Um, I'm very, I mean, 45 got elected. I'm really cynical. I think that we're probably doomed. I think humans cannot get their shit together, but maybe. Um, and I don't want to write out of a cynical place because why make art? Um, like that's how I see the world, but I want to make hopeful art. I want to make art that wishes for us to get better. And I just have to believe that that maybe we will, like art might be the way. It's interesting. Cause I'm, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a, a Christian and still a Christian, but very much a failed evangelical in the at least sociocultural sense of the term. Um, and I think, you know, idealistically, still, I think, a pacifist, although not that I know how far truly I would take that or really what that means. The idea of, you know, <laughs> the idea of approaching a Nazi in the language that, uh, that they understand um, is, uh, is an interesting one to me. And I don't know, I haven't resolved for myself what I think about that on the line between cynicism and hopefulness. Um, yeah, I, I get that. I am, I've always been very much a, uh, kind of a dreamy wandering soul combined with like a ruthless, pretty cynical mind. Uh, and those two things are in the dance just always my whole life. And uh, yeah, and it, it's a really interesting time. I think the, the biggest single question I have, and part of what I'm really looking forward to this Invisible Sun campaign, a theme that I want to explore is very much this question of when you have a thing that you have loved, and it has maybe even beyond failed you, maybe it has been proven to be from the beginning a uh, inherently bad or destructive thing, perhaps. <laughs> What is your response to that? Like, to what degree do you try to smash it all? To what degree do you try to rehabilitate it? To what degree do you try to course correct it? To what degree do you, you know, is there yeah, certainly a response is to just pretend everything's fine and build nice things on top of it without kind of looking at the underlying rot of it. Um, I don't want to do that. Um, and it, it's interesting because 
in the story world, I mean, Saturine has just been through a great war, which, you know, metaphorically kind of very similar in a lot of ways to World War I. Post-Enlightenment, I think for a period of time, people thought, wow, humanity and science and knowledge and communication and technology, like, we're really leveling up as a species. And like, maybe we're growing out of this and maybe we're not so barbaric anymore. And then the Great War comes along and we realize that really now we just know how to kill lots more people way faster in much more terrible ways. Um, And the very setting and nature of Saturine as a post-mysterious Great War city trying to rebuild itself brings a lot of these themes in. Um, And it is uh, absolutely something that I'm curious to play with because it's going to make for great stories and also because I need answers to that myself <laughs> sitting here in the gray. Uh, so, And I think this counts as art. Um, I mean, we're going to figure some stuff out about how we see the world by playing this game, um, but it's a narrative. And, you know, I'm a modernist. My art comes out of distrust of meta-narrative. I'm thinking like everything you told us about humans is just wrong. We didn't level up. Um, I mean, we did, but in a bad way. Um, we just got better at killing lots of people very quickly. Well, I'm thinking about what um, Ray, no, Rose in Star Wars. She says, um, we're going to win by saving what we love, not destroying what we hate. And I guess, I mean, I think we don't know yet what's going to work. <laughs> so let's like try a little of both. Um, like, I want to destroy ideas. I want to destroy bigotry because I hate it but I don't want to destroy people. And so I am a pacifist, actually. Like, I don't believe anyone deserves to die. <laughs> I'm anti-war deeply. Um, but I think when someone does, responding to violence and violence, I'm okay with. I'm a little more um, uh, X than King in that way. Um, but I also, most of the time, want to speak with love in my heart. That's my workshop standard in my classroom. I think that's probably a good one in general, but not, you know, like 99% of the time. Um, yeah. Thanks. I'm very, yeah. I'm very excited to be doing I'm this so alongside of you. Yeah. Because there's no magic down here, it must be serendipitous happenstance that both our featured interview and our advertiser have to do with badass women creating fiction. Razor Girl Press is a literary speculative fiction press that focuses on inclusive publishing of exquisite prose, fantastical adventure, and vivid other worlds. Their upcoming release is the second book in the Brass and Glass steampunk series, The Long Cursed Map. Contact them via their website at razorgirlpress.com and tell them that Jason from The Secret Seller sent you, and they'll fill you in on how to score a free book. While you're there, peruse their other offerings, ranging from gothic fantasy to cyberpunk fiction. Thank you so much to Razor Girl Press for sponsoring this episode of The Secret Seller. Is this novel, the one that was published, and it's like dumb that I don't even know this, we sat down at a table a long time ago and talked about future technology things. Is that what turned into this? Oh, yes, totally. So the novel's set five years in the future, so very near future. So I don't make a lot of technological um, predictions, but I make a couple. Um, I assume that in New York City, there will be driverless cars that only produce H2O um, as, as aftermath of being a car, um, which is technically possible. I don't know that we'll do it in five years. Um, the book's thinking about climate change. 
So it's very much an extension of the story collection. Like, what do we do in the face of the potential destruction of humanity? And I'm calling it pre-apocalyptic. So my students are really interested in post-apocalyptic, which is kind of what Invisible Sun is, right? There's been a kind of apocalypse. This is thinking like there's a looming apocalypse. And the hope is in the face of that, humans will get better. Uh, so the opening chapter says that uh, New York City is planning a party uh, to greet the beginning of the end of the world. <laughs> um, I hope it's a very hopeful book. <laughs> um, also, humans start coming up with solutions. They really kind of get together and are like, what are we going to do? And so the premise is it's kind of scientific. Uh, there's an uh, aviary built in Washington Heights, Manhattan, to hold every species of bird on Earth. So the book's called Every Living Species. And it's meant to be like a living zoo where people can come see the birds. But everyone knows that it's because they can't survive on the outside, uh, that pretty soon that will be the only place to come see the birds. So it's cynical and hopeful. Uh, and the, to launch it, they have a thousand contestants come and have a timed birding contest to see who can identify the most species in three days. And I follow a bunch of different characters as they move through this, you know, these fabricated climate zones that hold, you know, penguins and parrots and all the kinds of birds in the world. So kind of an absurdist premise. Um, it's, it's about making hopeful choices in the face of knowing that your child might be the end of humanity, basically. Um, so kind of a spoiler, but a character's pregnant and, and doesn't know if she wants to have this kid. And she basically has the conversation my husband and I had about what does it mean to bring a child into this world? And we made a hopeful choice. And spoiler, she ends up making a hopeful choice. And she decides, however humanity responds, like she would want to be alive to see it. So she's going to make the choice to have her kid be alive to see it. I'm glad you made that choice because your kid is rad. Your kid is rad too. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, hmm. that's hard because one of the ways I have gotten so much more deeply cynical very recently is um, I think at least I thought broadly, even though things were bad, that we were like collectively on some level trying. <laughs> and now it's hard to even believe that. But uh you know, in terms of quite literally saving ourselves from the extinction of yeah. everything. Um, <laughs> and I think the election of 45 was not good for your cynicism or mine. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is probably accurate. That is accurate. Um, yeah, but um, uh, <clears throat> I have nothing intelligent to say about that right now. Um, <laughs> tell us about your Lit Mag ventures, too. Oh, yeah. So Waxwing is in its fifth year. Our goal is to promote the diversity of writing in the United States, plus international writing and translation. I'm really proud of it. It's, um, I think it's gorgeous because you made it. And I think we're doing really important work in the world. So I'm a very big fan. Our next issue will launch June 15th. So that's going to be issue, I think we're on issue 17. Um, it might be 16. Um, so I had no idea how much joy working in a literary magazine would bring me. And then the undergrad magazine, our second volume, second issue just dropped. Um, the student writing in it is just so fantastic. It's also very beautiful. It's um, designed by students. So Waxwing is waxwingmag.org. And the tunnels is the tunnelsmagazine.com. Those are my two magazines. Um, do you want to tell us a little about some of your other projects and where people can find you if they want to hear more from your voice? Yeah, thank you. 
I got a grant this summer to write an entire novel. So now I have to do that. Um, it's an expansion about the, the story in the collection called Keen, which imagines that the ancient Irish custom of hiring women to mourn at funerals never died out and that we still do that. And so it's going to be a novel exploring um, the most famous keener in the world. So she's become a celebrity. And it's, I hope, going to be my way of thinking about mourning and loss and grief and a lot of things I've been feeling lately about not my personal life. My personal life is going great, but uh, our planet. So, you know, more death, more grief. <laughs> but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully also <laughs> Just in case people haven't run into it, because it wasn't really something I was familiar with until reading your short story, but talk just for a moment about Keening as, Absolutely. as, a, as, a, as a traditional thing. The understanding in, in kind of pre-Catholic Ireland was that if you mourned a, lo a loved one that had died, that would keep their spirit around. And so the idea was the family would not mourn. But to offset that, they would hire someone who would like wail and pull her hair out, fling herself onto the casket, um, and just perform mourning so that they could witness mourning, but they didn't do it themselves. And... I don't totally know why the custom died out. I don't think Catholicism wasn't really down with it. And it was female only, always only women were the keeners. And I think that's also really interesting. The thing that I may or may not bring in to the novel that's not in the short story is the tradition was before the funeral, you would have a merry wake. So the body would be in the family home on a table um, and people would drink and get wasted and play pranks on the body, play pranks on each other. This huge celebration was meant to help the body. It's not the body, but the soul leave. Um, so I'm not sure if we marry Wake in the United States in the novel. Um, the other thing I'm not sure about, uh, there was an ancient Irish, not ancient, it's uh, the post-famine idea of like, hungry ghosts, which would be a spot where a famine body died. And if a living human stepped on that spot, if you didn't have a piece of bread in your pocket, the spirit would take you to the, it would kill you. And I haven't found the equivalent for the United States. I'm not sure what you would have to offer where like the body of a black man shot in the street had died. But I think there's probably going to be some kind of hungry ghosts here in the United States too. So I think I'm going to take all three of those customs, um, specifically the United States, maybe internationally. So, I mean, I kind of have a plan, but clearly not much of one. I'll come up with one soon. So you may have misunderstood because I was asking about um, traditions here in the gray and you just described this whole invisible sun plot to me. <laughs> I'm teasing you, but, but everything you just described like sounds exactly like something that might exist as just matter of course, you know, in, in this yeah, world. That is I, so exciting. <laughs> so you're going to help me with my novel? <laughs> Thanks, dude. Um, a lot of my fiction that's available online, there are links there, and that's just erinstalkup.com. So that's where people can see me read some of the novel, read some of the stories, and then read some of my nonfiction, um, if they wish. Also gorgeous. Also designed by Jason Robinson of Beauty Mark Studios. So that is erinstalkup, E-R-I-N-S-T-A-L-C-U-P.com. Cool. Well, thank you again. Uh, stories are things very important to both of us and that has taken different forms in our lives but i am uh, very excited to have read a little of your world this year and i'm excited for you to play in a little of mine this year thank you so much for your time you should trust yourself to do literary analysis on a podcast you know what you're doing so thanks for your generous and lovely reading of my book that really means a lot to me thank you dear thank you
Have a good day. One of the goals of this podcast is to foster community among players of Invisible Sun and to bring forward some new voices so we can all get to know one another a little better. For this purpose, I'm introducing a new segment I call The Regulars. So I am pleased to welcome onto the show today, Rourke Bywater. How are you today, Rourke? I'm doing great. How are you, Jason? I'm good. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on. I wanted to talk to you because you invented a Invisible Sun-themed game a little while back. Yeah. It's a small thing, but I like it. I thought it was really cool. Well, first, tell us a little about who you are and, and what you do. Yeah, I'm Rourke Bywater. I'm a history student currently studying at university. So that's mostly what I do. Um, I'm also a, currently a tour guide at the State House over in Boston. Um, nice. That's what I'm doing during the day. But this was actually done before I started doing that. It was over the winter, back in December. Very cool. I guess give us a little bit of an intro to Suns and Circles and what it is. Right. So I was very impatient to get doing <laughs> Invisible Sun stuff. Um, we are all very impatient to get doing Invisible Sun stuff. <laughs> yes, um, I'm very excited uh, with what they've been showing as far as the Black Cube so far. Um, but I saw first the um, A Wound with Hollow Eyes stream, and I mm -hmm. just didn't really want to do anything else with role-playing until I could do Invisible Sun, <laughs> which is not the uh, maybe healthiest um, attitude for someone who does want to do some role-playing in the next few months. So I needed to get some of it out of my system, and this game was part of how I did that. I can absolutely relate, because that's part of why this podcast exists. So, <laughs> Yeah, so I wanted to do something with the Sooth deck, since we had that already. Mm -hmm. Do you want to give a brief explanation of the Sooth deck in general, in case anyone hasn't encountered it yet? Yeah, the Sooth deck is these kind of circular tarot-esque cards with really beautiful art on them very evocative, and they've all got numbers um, from 0 to 10, which kind of, uh, so you can use them during development mode sessions um, instead of dice and that sort of thing. But they also all have various symbolic meanings, and they've got, most of them have suns on the bottom, but some of them have um, some royalty words. Uh, but other than that, they work kind of like tarot cards. I think there's two main things I'd like to hear from you about, and one is just, as a game, what were you trying to accomplish uh, in kind of putting the rule set together? I kind of wanted something that could be played both in-universe and out-of-universe, because Bad. I think one of the great things that Invisible Sun does is it kind of merges the player experience with the character experience a lot, like the Testament of Suns, which is that hand that holds up the... Uh, card that's going to be staying active throughout the session um that six-fingered hand that's also a thing that ordered is like carry around with them um but also the black cube is something that exists in universe itself which is what all the game components come in so it just kind of made sense to me that the sooth deck would exist in there as well and i liked the idea of the sooth deck as something of a fortune telling mm -hmm. aspect so if i remember correctly the idea for how the game worked was I wanted it to be something where it would go back and forth um, and kind of be one of those games where it could also be used as a fortune-telling thing um, with maybe an older Vizlay doing divination for a younger Vizlay. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's been explicitly stated that Visley do carry these things around in, in world. And, you know, Visley are sensitive to the currents of magic that are flowing and shifting and changing. But this is a way to kind of interpret those things and divine the magic that they're reading in any given moment, which I think is a really cool crossover. Have you made other games before? Is this a regular thing for you? So as far as that, I've done a lot of smaller games just on my own time, kind of like this one. I think the first game that I designed when I was really little was a Mysterious Benedict Society role-playing game in the tradition of um, doing little things based on other things. But uh, this is my first Invisible something. Nice. Um, is there anything else that you're currently thinking about or working on that you want to tell folks about? Just as kind of a idea floating around in my head, I really want to do something with um, I'm a history major, so I'm really interested in the idea of how we create histories, and uh, I'm trying to work towards something that deals with um, kind of the generational um, aspects of queer histories and how it's kind of been lost due to like the AIDS crisis and um, it not necessarily being an identity that's passed down in families. So I want to do a game that kind of plays with generational role playing, which you don't uh -huh. get to do. Like some games, like Pendragon, have played with it. Um, but I don't know. That's something that's interesting to explore, and I'm playing with it, but nothing defined yet. Yeah, I had never thought at all about the difference between what gets passed down in queer culture versus not. Uh, I would love to hear more as you develop that. You mentioned, you know, maybe an older Vizlay using this as divination for a younger Vizlay, but I'd like to dig into that just a little more. You're hanging out in a bar or somewhere in in world, uh, and you see Vizlay sitting around playing this. <laughs> Like what situations would someone be like, oh, hey, we've got some time. Let me pull out a sooth deck. <laughs> Let's play Suns and Circles. <laughs> right. So it seems like a lot of the role playing in Invisible Sun is very player driven. So a lot of times it's players that are seeking something out or want to know a certain piece of information. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who might know that information. And I kind of imagine Suns and Circles as a way that they would go about getting that. Oh, I love that. Because someone's probably not going to do something for nothing and playing game to kind of as a negotiation stand in. I was thinking a lot about uh, Kitty Hart from A Woman with Hollow Eyes and kind of the no negotiation Absolutely. and gambling aspects uh, that are tied in with Goetics. And this seemed like an interesting thing that it could be an interaction that exists between two Vizlay, not just between like a Vizlay and a demon or an angel. Oh, sure. And if there's two players in the gray who are playing this at table, how long does it take roughly for a game start to finish? Uh, I have unfortunately not had uh -huh. a lot of chances to actually play this game. Um, I'm worried that it sure. takes a little bit too long, unfortunately. Um, I think it might be more effective as something of a stand-in for like, oh, you draw a suit deck card or two, and then you see how the game plays out. Um, I'm not sure how well it works um, as far as being able to be a game in itself rather than a narrative device. Um, I would love to hear more if anyone has played it about how it turned out, but I honestly don't have a great idea of that. Oh, fair enough. I am planning to go to Gen Con this year, and that will be a chance to be around lots of other nerds. So I will take it upon myself to uh, learn the game enough that I can, you know, rope someone into uh, playtesting it. Wonderful. Just because I've been wanting to try that. <laughs> yeah, I will be there as well. So oh, really? maybe we could play together. Oh my gosh, that would be lovely. Cool. Yeah, let's, uh, let's make a plan. I'm running games for MCG, but I'll be running Invisible Sun for some folks separately. Okay. Um, and it's a group of people who are 
also interested in playtesting various things, so I know they'd be down. So let's coordinate as it gets closer, and we'll make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, if people want to find you on Twitter, Twitch, elsewhere, uh, how can they do so? On Twitter, I'm at Rourke Bywater. Uh, not a very complicated handle, but on Twitch, I'm Rourke9. Um, so you can just call me Rourke if you see my Twitch. Great. And that's R-O-U-R-K-E. Yes. R-O-U-R-K-E-B-Y-W-A-T-E-R for my Twitter handle. Excellent. And um, is it okay if I share the link to the Google Doc with Suns and Circles in the show notes? Absolutely. And I do encourage um, some people who may have read it before. I did some editing on it, just making things a little bit neater. So if you take a second look at it, there might be something that was maybe not clarified or that you missed before. Um, so it might be worth a second look. Oh, perfect. We'll do that. Thank you so much for your time, Rocco. It's great to talk to you. Of course. Have a great day, Jason. You too. Bye. Thank you for stopping in tonight. Just a few housekeeping details as we pull up the mats and marry the bottles. If you're enjoying what you hear, it would be a tremendous help if you'd take a moment and rate or review this episode on iTunes or Overcast or Pocket Casts, wherever you find us. As a new podcast especially, it will help all the algorithms of the world to take us seriously. And if you're interested in advertising, write to me at secretseller at zeros.bar. For the moment, you can purchase an ad for just $2. This is a great place to put your thing in front of smart, nerdy, delightful people. <laughs> Audio design for The Secret Seller is by Casey Ross. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games, with whom Zeros.Bar and The Secret Seller are unaffiliated. May you find freedom, my friends, from Shadow. Mm -hmm.